continue our worship this morning by bowing in prayer once again. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. We come to you today. We come before you because we believe that you are the Son of God. We believe that you are the only Savior. We believe that you are the one who gives life. You are the one who gives grace. And we come as those who have received you by faith, and we come to receive more. We pray that you would give more grace, more light, more joy, more perspective, more wisdom. We come as needy people, and we come in faith trusting that you are the source of all that will satisfy our souls. So we ask, Lord Jesus, that now you would be glorified as we open your word, as we consider who you are. Speak to us and conform us into your image. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please open up once again to Luke chapter 8. As John mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, over the last number of weeks, we really have been focusing on the importance of hearing rightly. We've been focusing on that because, well, that's been the emphasis in Luke's gospel. We saw that, that truth, the importance of hearing, illustrated with the parable of the soils. The seed is scattered on different types of soil. And the, ones that, the soil that bears fruit is descriptive of those that hear and receive the word rightly, in faith, with obedience. And following that, Jesus, in private, spoke to his disciples, and he gave them this metaphor of light, of a lamp that's lifted up in a room to illuminate things. And he says, take care how you hear. For the one who has, the one who has light, the one who has faith, the one who has understanding, Jesus says, more will be given. And the one who does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. And then last week on Mother's Day, we talked about the importance of true family. Thanks, buddy, for getting that for me. <clears throat> we talked about how those who hear and respond to the word rightly comprise a new spiritual family. So there's been this emphasis uh, in this chapter about what it means to hear and what it means to hear rightly. Well, in the story that we arrive at today, in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, Luke turns our attention to this event. And it's an event that powerfully underscores exactly who it is that we're supposed to be listening to, exactly who it is that is speaking. Because our response to what Jesus says is ultimately a response to who Jesus is. I want you to look with me in our text, starting in verse 22 of Luke chapter 8. Luke writes that one day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? 
This story is probably familiar to many of you. It's a, one of the most famous scenes in the Gospels because it's such a compelling story. It has suspense. It has danger. There is a hero at the middle of the story. And the resolution to this crisis leaves us with wonder and amazement at everything that's just happened. And like the best stories, this story about Jesus calming the storm, it's not meant to entertain us or amuse us. It's meant to challenge us. It's intended to even change us. We're meant to come to the end of this story so that we as readers are left wrestling with the same question that the disciples asked, who then is this? The winds and the water obey him. That, my friends, is exactly the right question that we ought to be asking. And the answer to that question, the answer to the question as we behold Jesus, we behold his power and his glory, we look at what he claims to be and what he performs and accomplishes, we are left wondering, who then is this? Puts us face to face with the divine authority of Jesus Christ. Our response to what Jesus says as he calls us to believe in him, as he calls us to trust in him, as he calls us to follow him, our response to what Jesus says is ultimately a response to who Jesus is. I want to trace through the disciples' experience in the storm today and then consider together how this story challenges us, how he speaks to us. In verses 22 and 23, first of all, we find the disciples following Jesus. That's what disciples do, right? They follow. And they are following Jesus. And what, where does Jesus lead them? Well, he leads them out onto the lake. He gets into the boat with his disciples and says, let's go across to the other side. So the story begins simply enough with this recommendation of going across this body of water. Jesus is in the, the region of Galilee. He's been traveling from city to city. He's been preaching. He's been performing miracles. He's been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And so the the lake that Luke mentions here is what we usually refer to as the Sea of Galilee. They call it a sea, but it really is a lake. It's about eight miles by 13 miles wide. So it's a little bigger than Clinton Lake, but it's not what you would think of in terms of an ocean. This body of water was famous for its clear, clean water. It was famous for its abundance of fish. There was many different species. Uh, There's a lot of good fishing there. And and the whole area was surrounded by very fertile farmland. So it was a rich agricultural region. And there were several cities that dotted the shores. There was Tiberias. There is Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. Bethsaida. And then the city of Capernaum. That's where James and, and John and Peter and Andrew were from. That's where they had their fishing business. And that's where Jesus would base his home or his Galilean ministry from as well. So Jesus suggests, let's take a boat and go across the lake. And that makes sense because Jesus had some professional fishermen in the group. They had access to boats and they knew how to use them. And, and it would have been perhaps easier to sail across than to walk all the way around, probably safer as well. There's always the danger of robbers and bandits on the road. So we know from different artwork and even some uh, archaeological discoveries uh, from this time that these fishing boats that were often used, they're about 27 feet long. They would have had two sets of oars, so you could have four men rowing at a time. So this is not a small boat. It's not a little rowboat, but it's also not a massive ship. But anyway, it would have held Jesus and the 12 easily enough. 
And so they enter into the boat, they follow Jesus' lead, and they set sail. This is a normal day at the office for Jesus and the disciples. But that's when things began to happen. Verse 23 says that as they sailed, that Jesus fell asleep. Now, there's often a small deck that covered the front and back of these boats. So there would have been plenty of room there for Jesus to curl up and take a little nap, which he did. He's probably exhausted from teaching, exhausted from traveling, exhausted from interacting with people and healing and comforting and meeting needs. So he takes advantage of this rare, quiet moment. But it doesn't stay quiet very long because right after that, Luke says, a windstorm came down on the lake. The Sea of Galilee is actually the, the lowest, it's, it's the lowest body of water below sea level, the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It's 700 feet below sea level. But it's surrounded by these hills and a mountain range to the north. So you get these cold weather systems that come down from the mountains, and then you have the warm, humid air rising up from the lake, which means you can get these very violent storms that, that happen very rapidly. And this one was a doozy. Luke says that they were getting absolutely hammered. He says that they were filling with water and were in danger. And this is not an imaginary danger. This is not just nervous disciples looking at clouds in the distance and and assuming the worst. No, this is actual danger. They're in danger of capsizing. The waves are so big that they are filling up the boat faster than they could bail it out. And in a storm like this, in in a lake that's this big, if you're out in the middle... If that boat goes down, you're not swimming back to shore. If the boat goes down, they're done. And this is the crisis that the disciples find themselves in. And it's all because they're following Jesus. He had led them here. This was his idea. And yet Jesus, in the midst of the storm, is sleeping in the boat. So the disciples go from following Jesus to, in verse 24, questioning Jesus. Master, master, they go and wake him up and they say, master, master, we are perishing. There's an interesting parallel here, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, to another story about another storm in another boat and another man who is asleep. That's the story of Jonah. Yet the focal character is sleeping. Jonah's life was in danger and Jesus and the disciples seem to be in danger. So we see a little bit of parallelism here between Jesus' experience and Jonah's. And just like the pagan sailors in Jonah's day, they go and rouse Jonah. They wake him up and tell him to cry out to his God. In their desperation, the disciples here are rousing Jesus from his sleep. You can see their urgency as they say, there's the repetition of master, master. They're waking him up. They're shaking him. And if these seasoned sailors were this afraid, it must have been a pretty bad storm. Peter and Andrew and James and John were professionals. They aren't rookies. And they know that they're in trouble. They rouse Jesus and they say, we are perishing. I know this is a familiar story, but I want you to to consider these words. They don't say that they might die or that they could die. They really believe that this is the end. We are perishing. This is it. This is the end. Death to them seems imminent and unavoidable. It's easy for us to, to read this story. We're familiar with it and we're sitting safe and sound in the comfort of our sanctuary. But just imagine for a moment what they felt like. Imagine that moment as you're considering that this is the end. You're wondering what it's going to be like to fight for breath as you lose strength and go beneath the waves. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a life and death scenario 
where you literally thought that you were going to die. Many of you haven't. Some of you have. But that's an incredibly surreal experience. Your heart's pounding. The adrenaline is flowing at a high level. That's where these disciples are. And they're rousing Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. But I think as they're addressing Jesus, they're not just telling him something that they think he doesn't know. Their statement really is implying two questions. There's two questions that are in the heart of these disciples. As they rouse Jesus and say, Master, Master, we are perishing, what this reveals about their hearts is that they're wondering, does Jesus know and does Jesus care? That's really where their hearts are in this moment. Does Jesus know? If he knows that we are perishing, why is he sleeping? If Jesus cares, why is he ignoring our struggle? They interpret his sleep, his silence, his lack of action to this point. They interpret it as apathy. His lack of action appears to them to reveal a lack of concern for their lives. Jesus, don't you know? Jesus, don't you care? Why aren't you helping us bail water? Why aren't you helping us pull at the oars? Why don't you cry out to God on our behalf? Why do you seem so disconnected in this moment of crisis? Because we are perishing. If we're honest, these are the questions and the emotions that tend to bubble up in our own souls when we face crisis. We feel vulnerable. We wonder if we've been forgotten We wonder if God has abandoned us because we are in the midst of a crisis. We are in the midst of suffering. We are in the midst of pain or danger. And God hasn't seemed to have said or done anything. God, don't you know? God, don't you care that we are perishing? We face storms all around us. Financial crisis, relational conflict, There's cultural turmoil, there's illness and physical suffering. We could go on down the list. All the circumstances around us that make us feel vulnerable, that threaten us, that pose a very real danger to our well-being. There's also the storms inside of us, the storms that people may not be able to see, the fears, the anxieties, the discouragements, the doubts, the despair. Storms without, storms within. And the two questions that rise in our hearts are, Jesus, don't you know? Jesus, don't you care? That's their assumption as they look at Jesus asleep in the boat at this moment of all moments. But listen, the disciples fundamentally misinterpreted what it meant that Jesus was sleeping. You know, it's ironic. Jesus was, though he was fully God, he was fully human like us, and he slept pretty much every night, except for those few nights where he stayed up praying all through the night. Jesus slept all the time, but this is the only scene in the Gospels where it's described to us that Jesus is sleeping. The author wants us to notice that Jesus is sleeping at this very moment. And it's not because of his apathy towards them. That's not what this means. Rather, the sleep of Jesus really is displaying his trust in God's sovereignty and his knowledge of his own power over every aspect of this situation. Jesus is really exemplifying the faith of Psalm 46. I'll read it for you. Psalm 46, starting in verse 1, says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. That's the kind of faith that Jesus is displaying. That confidence. And he's about to teach the disciples a lesson about this kind of faith. The disciples have been following Jesus. It led them into the storm. Then they're questioning Jesus. Master, master, we're perishing. But what happens next is the disciples are rescued by Jesus. Verse 24, they went and woke him, saying, Master, master, we are perishing. And look at what Jesus does. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Jesus woke up. He did not ignore them. But Jesus didn't grab an oar. Jesus didn't help them bail out any water. And and get this, Jesus didn't even cry out to God on their behalf. He didn't pray in this moment. No, instead, Jesus does something that these disciples did not expect. Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks a word of rebuke to the storm itself. And this is an incredible act of authority. This is an incredible display and exercise of his power. And you know what happens when Jesus speaks? We've seen it throughout the Gospels. When Jesus speaks, the demons shudder and obey, don't they? When Jesus speaks, disease leaves the body. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. When Jesus speaks, death itself is reversed. And here, when Jesus speaks, the creation hears and obeys the word of Christ. The wind and waves cease, and there's a perfect calm as nature obeys the word of its master. In Jesus' mighty works and miracles, when he rebukes the demons and when he heals, when he raises the dead, when he rebukes the storm, what Jesus is doing is bringing all rebel powers under his sovereign rule. Jesus is giving a kingdom illustration displaying the glory of his righteous rule, revealing his divine power and authority. When Jesus speaks with authority, all rebel powers are brought under his rule. Now, I want you to imagine being there just for a moment. Imagine thinking that you're about to die. You're in that fight or flight mode. Adrenaline is pounding. Your heart's beating out of your chest. And then instantly it's over. Immediately, There's a calm. You would almost think that it had been a dream, except they're standing there and the boat is still half full of water. But Jesus isn't done speaking. The disciples look and they see that the wind and the waves have ceased. There's a perfect calm. Then they turn and look at Jesus and Jesus speaks to them. After rescuing his disciples, now it's time to teach them. The disciples are questioned by Jesus in verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? The one who had just spoken a word to silence the storm now speaks a word to his trembling followers. They had questioned his care. They had questioned if he really knew, if he really cared for them, questioned whether or not he had forgotten and abandoned them. They had questioned his awareness of their situation. And now Jesus questions their faith. They had seen him cast out demons before. These men had witnessed Jesus heal the sick. They had even seen him raise the dead. 
And while many people in that day, they failed to understand who Jesus was, they failed to understand his teaching, Jesus had explained everything to these disciples in private. Remember what he said earlier in chapter eight, to you is given to know the secrets of the kingdom. Jesus has explained it to them. And so he turns to them and says, where is your faith? He says, really? After all that I have shown you, after all that you have seen me do, after everything that I have taught you, where is your faith? We've seen several others commended for their faith in Luke's gospel. Remember the the centurion, the Roman centurion, who asked Jesus to to, to perform a, a miracle of healing on his behalf? He said, just say the word. You don't even have to come. I know that it will be done. Jesus marveled, and he said, I've not found this kind of faith in all of Israel. His faith was commended. Right after that, we saw the sinful woman, the woman who had a major reputation in that town. She weeps over Jesus' feet, wipes them with her hair, and Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus commends their faith. But the disciples here are struggling. They may have had more knowledge than the crowds because of Jesus' private instruction. But there's a difference between knowledge and faith. There's a difference. Faith means trusting in his saving power. Trusting that his presence with them in the boat was what they needed. But rather than trusting Jesus, they had doubted him. They doubted that he was willing and able to help them in any sense as they were perishing in the midst of the storm. These disciples did have faith. They had an initial faith. They had left everything else behind to follow Jesus. But now this faith is being tested. This faith is being stretched. This faith is being challenged. And ours will be also. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know following Jesus is hard. And in those moments when the storms of life intensify, those are the moments when we see the true measure of our trust in Jesus. Some of you today may be in the same boat, pun intended, as the disciples. Right now, today, you are in the midst of a storm. And perhaps you're wondering, does Jesus know? Does Jesus care? Does Jesus see? Is he going to help me? And you know all about Jesus. You've heard his message. You know what Jesus has done. You know what Jesus can do. But right now, the question is, will you trust him? Have you placed your faith in him to save you? Have you exchanged fear for faith? This faith, this trust, is the response that Jesus is calling for. These these disciples have followed Jesus. They've questioned Jesus. They've now been rescued by Jesus, rebuked by Jesus. And now we come to really the climax of the story. The climax is not where Jesus stops the storm. The climax is actually in verse 25. This is the mic drop moment. Jesus says to them, where is your faith? And then here's what Luke leaves us with. Here's the result. And they, the disciples, were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? In the book of Jonah, when the storm ceases after they throw Jonah overboard, we're told about the reaction, the response of those pagan sailors. 
Jonah 1 verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These these sailors that had worshipped all these other gods, when they saw that the storm stopped, that God is sovereign over the storm, they feared exceedingly, and they started worshiping God. They offered him a sacrifice. They started making promises. Okay, Yahweh, God of the, the Hebrews, we're going to worship you from now on. That's the response in Jonah chapter 1. And here we see a parallel. Just like the pagan sailors, the disciples also are filled with fear. They're filled with fear. They're afraid. They've been confronted with this overwhelming conclusion. This conclusion that the one that is in the boat is not like them. He is not like us. You see, these men knew the Old Testament. They knew the scriptures, and they knew that what they had just witnessed was something that only God can do. Again, in the book of Jonah, it's very clear that God sent the storm. Jonah 1.4 says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Who is it that makes storms? Who is it that sends storms? Who is it that rules over the sea and the wind and the waves? God does. And in the book of Jonah, when the sailors reluctantly agree to throw the disobedient prophet overboard, it's God who stops the storm instantly. And so in this situation, as Jesus' disciples witness their storm cease instantly, they witness it cease at the words of Jesus. This is where the story is very different than the book of Jonah. Unlike Jonah, Jesus wasn't the problem. Jesus was the solution. And Jesus has just done what only God can do. Psalm 65, verses 6 through 7, says that God is the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 89, verses 8 through 9, says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still, you still them. The psalmist asks, who is mighty like you? Who else can do this? Who else can, can calm the sea? The Old Testament is clear that God rules over his creation. And Jesus has just exercised that rule. And he did it by his own word. He doesn't pray. He doesn't appeal to any outside force. Jesus simply speaks, and the storm stops, and only God can do that. In the book of Genesis, we see that God created the heavens and the earth by simply speaking. If you go back to Genesis 1, nine different times we find the phrase, God said. God says, let there be and it happens. God speaks and light shines. God speaks and galaxies leap into existence. God speaks and molecular structures snap together. It's the word of God that creates and sustains and governs all of nature. And Jesus is none other than that incarnate word. John, who was in the boat that night, later would write in his gospel, Echoing Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he says, he was in the beginning with God. 
And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the divine agent of creation, the incarnate word of God. He is the divine son who is one with the father, and though he is a man who needs to sleep at times, he is nevertheless fully God in the flesh. That's the only explanation for the calming of the storm. And that's why the disciples are afraid. They are now realizing that the one in the boat with them is not like them. So the disciples marvel, who then is this, that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? That's the right question. They should not be questioning whether he knows or whether he cares. They need to know who he is. And that's the question Luke wants us to consider as well. That's why he finishes the story by leaving us sort of hanging with this statement, this question. He doesn't ask, he doesn't leave us with this question so that we can simply give a pat answer. No, he leaves us with this question. Who then is this? That even he commands the wind and the waves and they obey him. He leaves us with this question so that we too will be led to respond with awe and wonder. That's how we're supposed to respond. Jesus is doing more here than simply showing his power over nature. This is revelation. This is Jesus revealing that he is the son of God and that he is mighty to save. His powerful presence means deliverance for his people. The Jesus who saved them that day from physical death is also the Jesus who came to save them from spiritual death. This Jesus came to die in their place and rise again on the third day to deliver them, not just from the storm of the wind and the waves, but from the coming wrath of God. The presence of Jesus in the boat meant rescue and deliverance for those he loves. And his presence in the world as the incarnate son of God who came here to live a righteous life and die and rise again, his presence in the world would mean salvation, eternal salvation for all who believe. Listen, our response to what Jesus says is ultimately a response to who Jesus is. Because of that, I want to ask you, in conclusion, three questions this morning. First of all, I want to ask you, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him as the Lord of all creation? Do you know him as the sovereign over the storm? Not just the storm on the Sea of Galilee, but the storms in your life as well? Do you know him not just as a moral example and a good teacher and someone who had compassion? Do you know him as the King of Kings? Do you know him as the Lord of Lords? Do you know him as God in human flesh? Do you know him as the one who not only calms the storm, but as the one who died for sins and rose again? If you say, yes, I know that that's who he is then does your knowledge of Jesus lead you to wonder and awe? Does it? In our Sunday school class this morning, Scott gave us an overview of the book of Micah, and I'd like to read from the end of Micah chapter 7. You might say, you know what, J.D.? Jesus has never calmed any big storms in my life. It's hard for me to feel awe and wonder because I'm still in it. But listen, friend, if you've experienced salvation by grace through faith, There is all the fuel that you could ever need for an eternity of awe and wonder. 
In Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Micah proclaims, who is a God like you? That sounds like the disciples, doesn't it? Who is this? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Are you filled with wonder, not just at the power of Jesus over creation, but at his power to bring salvation to you? His power to rescue you from slavery to those sins that dominated your life. Are you filled with wonder and awe at his power to redeem you and rescue you from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of Satan? Are you filled with wonder and awe that he, by his gracious, divine, supernatural power, will even rescue you from death and resurrect you for eternity? Or do you yawn at the glory of the gospel? Who then is this? The wind and the waves obey him, and he would bring salvation to people like us. In the book of Exodus, the children of Israel are rescued. They are brought through the Red Sea as God opens the waters, and then as they witness the destruction of Pharaoh's armies as the waters collapse, Moses writes, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This deliverance redirects our fears. Israel is no longer afraid of the Egyptians, they fear the Lord. The disciples are no longer afraid of the storm, they're filled, filled with fear because Jesus is in their midst. Friends, this is the first step towards faith. To see who Jesus is, to be filled with awe and wonder, and to redirect our gaze to him. Do you know him? Do you know him as he is? Because our response to what Jesus says is ultimately a response to who Jesus is. The second question, will you trust him? You might say, yes, I do know him. Great. Follow-up question, will you trust him? If Jesus is able to calm the storm, then we must trust that he's also able to save us. He's able to free us from the enslavement to sin. You might say, I can't change. This sin has roots that go too deep. Will you trust Jesus? Will you trust his power? You might say, this suffering is too difficult for me to endure. Will you trust him? Will you believe that his grace is sufficient for you in your weakness? You might be plagued with the fear of death. Will you trust him that his promise is true and that you can die in faith knowing the promise that everyone who believes in him will be raised up on the last day? Can you trust him with your need, with your uncertainties, with your discouragement and your doubts? There are storms without and storms within, but we can look to Christ and trust him. You see, not only is Jesus able to save us eternally, we can trust him with our souls, but Jesus is also sovereign over the storms in your life, the trials and adversity that you face. Following Jesus doesn't mean that there won't be any storms. Remember that Jesus led them right out into the lake, and he let them sit there for a little while. He, he let them experience 
the danger. He let them see the waves filling up the boat. He, he allowed them to be in that moment. But Jesus never left them. Jesus was in the boat with them the whole time. And friends, he's also in the boat with us. I love Isaiah chapter 43. Now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do you believe that? Then don't be afraid. If Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all creation, and if Jesus is with us, and if Jesus knows, and he does, if Jesus cares, and he does, then we can trust him. No storm can destroy us. No enemy can prevail. So have faith. Jesus questioned the disciples that day, where is your faith? And he says that to us today through this text here at Redemption Hill Church. Where is your faith? Where is your resiliency? Where is your trust? Where is your hope? Where is your confidence to endure even in the midst of the storm? Don't you know who Jesus is? Don't you know what Jesus can do? Don't you know the promises of Christ? Trust the one whose presence in the boat with us means salvation. Do you know him? Will you trust him? And then finally, will you obey him? Will you obey him? I was struck as I was studying this familiar passage this week. The wind and the waves instantly obeyed the sovereign word of Christ. How about us? How about us? Will we obey the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ when he speaks to us. This is why I think Luke puts this story right on the heels of all of these passages about the importance of hearing and obeying the word of Christ. Hebrews 12, 25 says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, speaking of that generation of Israel in the wilderness, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Will you obey the word of Christ? If we see Jesus rightly, if we see him with awe as the exalted sovereign over all creation, and, and if we are trusting him, trusting that he knows and he cares, that he loves us, that his promises are true, if we have that faith, it must produce obedience. It must produce obedience. How can we do anything less than obey his word? If this is who Jesus is. So will you obey him? He calls us to believe. He calls us to turn from sin. He calls us to follow him and to trust in his promises. Will you? Will you obey Christ? Our response to what Jesus says is ultimately a response to who Jesus is. So although this story may be familiar for many of us, I hope that today that you'll hear it in a fresh sense, that you will consider the startling reality that the disciples experienced that day out on the lake, that Jesus is the master of creation. He is the sovereign over the storm who speaks with divine power and divine authority. So let's trust him. Let's obey him. 
And let's stand in awe together at the glory of his grace towards us. Father in heaven, my heart is heavy today for those who may be right now in the midst of a storm. Maybe it's a storm of their circumstances on the outside and adversity they face. Maybe it's a storm on the inside. Maybe it's both. I pray that today they would remember who you are, that you are the sovereign Lord of all creation, that you are the master of the storm, that you are sovereign, that you have led them here, and that you will not abandon them in their moment of trial. I pray that rather than than fearing the wind and the waves, I pray that they would look to you today, that they would look in awe at your power and your glory, that they would trust you, that they would obey you. Lord, we thank you that we can trust in your promises and that whether or not you remove the source of difficulty in our life, we know that the greatest danger, the the greatest threat to our well-being the holy justice and the righteous wrath of God. You've rescued us from that. It's through your death on the cross and by the power of your resurrection that we have been saved from that storm, the storm that will come on the day of the Lord when your wrath falls on the ungodly. And Lord, we have been ungodly. We deserve that justice, that punishment. We thank you that by your gracious power, you have redeemed us, you have saved us, and you promise to be with us now to the end. Lord Jesus, may you receive the glory that you deserve. I pray that we would see you rightly today so that we might love you, fear you, and trust you. Amen.